Amen. What a gift uh, to sing together. Knowing that you came in here, maybe all sorts of different uh, struggles and needs and some really practical ones. I know some of you awaiting medical test results, some of you coming out of some tough times. uh, But man, you know, we need to be together with God's people and to sing. What a joy. I heard the, the little worship team up here today singing this morning in practice, and I told them, you guys sound really good together, but you know what sounds better? Like 200 of us uh, singing together. What a gift. And, uh, and maybe you knew the songs and you were jumping in and you're worshiping because you know that the God that we're singing to is worthy of worship. Maybe you were just listening to people around you. But I think music stirs something up in us because, because we're reminded as we sing that we are wired to worship. God made us to worship Him. And really, we're all just deciding who is worthy, what is worthy of our worship. And I love that song that we just sang at the end, coming right out of Revelation 5, saying, we know the one who is worthy. It comes out of Revelation chapter 5, that song does. That's why some of the language in there are like, oh, that seems like strange language to be singing about. Well, well, Revelation is this vision that John is given of worship around the throne of God. And, And you know, as much as it was a privilege, I think, to just hear a couple hundred voices singing that, listen to what it says. In that very passage, it says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then look at what it says next. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We're just this tiny little fraction. We get together on a Sunday morning and a few of us are singing praises. And as we do, we're joining with, I don't even know, I don't remember this from math, what myriads and myriads are, but I think it's a lot. Thousands of thousands, angels gathered around the throne, worshiping the only one who is worthy, the Lamb who was slain for us. And so what a privilege. Thank you, worship team, for your work. And thank you, church, just for singing along with them as they do that. I'm so grateful uh, that I get to be a pastor. I'm grateful that part of my work, I love being with people in their homes, meeting with people in my office, counseling people through hard things. I love preaching the Word. That only takes about 30, 35 minutes, uh, but it takes usually about a day uh, to prepare for it. And this week, man, what a privilege that God works in me as I prepare to preach. And most of the time that happens in my office This week it happened down by the fire pit here at the church, and I just spent a day down there uh, studying and writing, and it was just a joy to be out in what God made. So thank you for the privilege. Just thank you. Uh, I couldn't, like, you guys pay me uh, to do this, and I'm really, really grateful uh, that I get to be a pastor and that I get to preach. Um, In addition uh, to being a dad, a husband, a pastor, I'm also... uh, a fan of uh, of the just clinched the American League Central and we're probably going to lose a couple playoff games really soon, Minnesota Twins. They, did you know this? The Minnesota Twins, like, they're this, I, I, love, I really enjoy the sport of baseball. The Minnesota Twins uh, consistently make it into the playoffs, have done it many years. 
And actually, they are on a streak of losing 18 straight playoff games. They have not won one since 2004. Uh, but this is going to be the year, uh, they say every year, where things turn around. I, I really like the sport of baseball. I love the stats. I love the strategy. I love the pace. I love the athleticism. But I think what draws a lot of people to a lot of different sports, more than all of those things, is, is the stories of individuals and of teams. Uh, one story that's captured the hearts of a lot of Twins fans this year is this young guy named Royce Lewis. Royce Lewis has come out of nowhere, it seems. Well, not really. And he's done some really kind of amazing things. He's played in fewer than half of the Twins games, but he's third on the team in RBIs. He is batting 309 with a 921 OPS, and he has the Twins record for number of grand slams in a season. And again, he's only played in less than half of their games. In fact, I wrote this sermon on Tuesday down by the fire, and I think it was either that day or the next day, that he went back on the injured list. If you did some digging, you'd find that this guy's story involves being drafted number one, the first overall pick in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft back in 2017, but this is considered his rookie year because every year since then, he has been hampered by injury. So when he finally broke out, everybody who's a Twins fan is so excited to see this guy. When we see somebody do something, even those that didn't know that story might go back and read the story and we start asking questions. When we see somebody do something that not other people can do, we start wondering, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Who is he like? What else might he be able to do? And that's what we've been doing as we've been introduced to Jesus in the Gospel according to Luke. We have seen Jesus do some incredible, miraculous things things. And we're starting now to turn the corner and questions are being asked more and more. Well, who is this guy? Who is he like? What else is he going to do? Last week, we saw him heal the servant of a centurion. This servant was sick and near to death, but God healed him. Jesus healed him. And now we're going to see him really take it up another, to another level this week. We will see Jesus' compassion and power on display in the face of death. His actions are going to cause people to wonder, who is this man? And as we listen today, my hope and my prayer is that God would move in our hearts, that we might be a people who trust in Jesus' power over death and imitate His compassion for the vulnerable. And no matter how passionately I preach, no matter how much preparation I've done, that's going to have to be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so, before I read God's Word, we're going to pray to the God who inspired every word of it. And if you're able to, would you stand that we might give special attention to the Word of God. Let's pray first. Father, would you help our minds uh, that are easily distracted? We admit it. We spend way too much time throughout the week just kind of like glancing down at our phone or thinking about this and thinking about that. And that could happen now, but God, would you by your Spirit for your glory and for our good, just take our minds, take our hearts, get us all together in this place, hearing what your Spirit has to say through your Word, uh, working in our minds, in our hearts, in our hands, in our mouths for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Short passage today, Luke chapter 7 Verses 11 through 17. God's word says this 
Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. You can take a seat. If it's helpful to you to have notes and to know where we're headed, there is notes there inside your bulletin. Also, along with the notes is a life group guide. If you're looking around at a group of people like, I know only a few of them, or I don't know any of them, and you'd like to know people more, we like to have fellowship with each other around the Word of God. And so we have these things called life groups. We have more information about those on the black counter as you walked in. Just pick up a sheet. It tells you where all of our life groups meet, when they meet, where they meet, and you're welcome to join one. We'd love to have you in one of those groups. But there you have uh, sermon notes as well. In verses 11 and 12, we get an introduction to the setting and the situation. We're small town people, and so we like small town stories, and this is a small town story. What's going to happen here happens in the small town called Nain. It was south of Capernaum. That's where Jesus was when we looked at the passage last week. Now he and a crowd with him has traveled south, getting closer to his hometown where he grew up of Nazareth. Nain is a small town. It still exists today as a very small town. About the size of Ackley is how many people live there today. It was likely even a lot smaller than that in Jesus' day. But he's around the area where he grew up. And he has a crowd with him. Remember that after Jesus healed the centurion's servant who was sick, Jesus commended the faith of this Gentile, saying that I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel. And those who were with him, his apostles that he has appointed, along with other disciples, were following him and had traveled now from Capernaum down to this small town of Nain. I would guess that there's kind of a happy mood in the crowd. Wherever Jesus goes, he's doing healing. Wherever he teaches, People are listening. People are following him. I imagine the crowd going along, having lively conversation on the road, probably some laughter, but then the crowd with Jesus runs into another crowd. And in this crowd, there's not laughter. This crowd is also gathered around one, but the one that this crowd is gathered around is dead and laying on a funeral plank called a bier. This crowd is not laughing, they're mourning. And the one likely weeping the loudest is a woman whose world has just been rocked. Now in that day, funerals typically would take place on the same day that the person had died. So quite likely, this woman walking alongside or right in front of this 
funeral plank that holds the body of her son. In fact, it is her only son. And we learn more about this woman here in this passage, verses 11 and 12. We're told that this woman is a widow. See, she's taken this walk, this walk from the small town of Nain out to the cemetery, out to the graveyard, next to a funeral plank. She's done this before, but the time before it was her husband. She's a widow now. And in that day, women were dependent on their husband for their livelihood. And this woman's life was about to get tough. She knew that at the moment when her husband died and she was walking next to his funeral plank. But she knows that now even more because while she once had one son who could provide for her and protect her and care for her, now she's walking next to his funeral plank and his body laying dead on the plank wrapped up in some burial cloths. She's weeping, and you would be too. In fact, it's a small town, so while this death will affect her most, there's many others from the town who are accompanying her on her way to bury her only son. She will walk away that day from the graveside feeling maybe more alone than she's ever felt in her life. A widow, and now with no son. Vulnerable in so many ways in that world. And so that's the setting and situation in verses 11 and 12. And in verses 13 to 15, we're going to see the compassion and power of Jesus. You'll note that when Jesus, Luke here refers to Him as Lord, when Jesus sees her, what will Jesus do? When we come upon a funeral procession in our day, What is typical for us is that we will stop. If we're in our vehicle, we'll pull over to the side as we watch the funeral procession slowly going by. Is that what Jesus and His crowd with Him will do? Will Jesus motion to those behind Him to cut the conversation, to cut the laughter and recognize what's going on standing respectfully and watching them go by? Or... Will Jesus and the crowd with Him do what was the custom in that day, and that is fall into the line? Come to the end of the funeral procession and just walk with them? And the answer is no. Jesus and the crowd with Him will do neither of those things. Instead, Jesus does something that would have surprised the people around Him. Everybody. Verse 13 says this. Verse 13 says, that when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Compassion. That is, Jesus was affected emotionally. More literally, His insides got stirred up as He saw this woman weeping, walking in front of the funeral plank, holding the body of her dead son. This woman without a husband, now without a son, a mom at her son's funeral. Jesus' response, compassion. He feels her pain. He feels her grief. He feels the emptiness. And Jesus has compassion on her. She might be surprised when she's told not to weep. Everyone is surprised when Jesus approaches that funeral plank and He puts His hand on it. Those bearing it stop in their tracks. 
They would know as Jewish people that this is going to make Jesus unclean to get that close to a dead body to in fact even touch the funeral plank would make Him unclean according to their law. What is He doing? Who is this guy? Can't He see what's going on here? Why would He interrupt this moment? And then He says some words that would probably make some in the crowd there chuckle a little bit, if it not at least raise their eyebrows. Jesus talks to a dead body. Don't overlook that. That's a strange thing to do. That Jesus looks at this body. The, the funeral's done. They're on their way to the graveside. And Jesus talks to a dead body. And He says to the dead body, young man, I say to you, arise. And then verse 15 tells us something miraculous. It says, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now I'm no mortician or doctor, but that is not normal. That somebody wrapped and ready for burial, laying dead, hears a voice saying, get up, and he sits up and begins to speak. Now, we have seen Jesus heal the sick. Even those who were really sick and near to death like the one we saw last week. But this man, he wasn't just sick. He was dead. His blood was not flowing anymore. He was dead. His brain wasn't functioning anymore. His heart wasn't beating. This man had no pulse. His skin had turned cold because he was dead. Until Jesus spoke to him and told him to arise. Jesus raised a dead man to life. And then this compassionate, powerful one gives the man to his mother. The compassion and the power of Jesus are on full display on this day at the gate of this small town as these two crowds run into each other. Something is going on here. God is doing something. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Who is he like? Those are the questions going through everybody's mind, and that's what we get in verses 16 and 17. Luke is going to tell us how the people respond. Look at verses 16 and 17. We notice the first response of the people is fear. You would be scared too if someone wrapped in burial cloths lying on a plank just got up and started speaking. Fear sees them all, it says. There is something, not just the dead man rising, but the fact that this man spoke to him with authority and told him to do it. They are in awe of what just happened. There's something powerful, holy, awesome going on here. And the second response is glorifying God. Fear sees them all, it says, and they glorified God. God is glorified when people see Him doing something and recognize that it's Him doing something. So they try to understand who He is. And they do what most of us would do. They try to compare Him to something that they already know. So let's look. It says... 
the first thing they say is a great prophet has arisen among us. There had been great prophets in the history of Israel, and they had been told of another great prophet yet to come. And they're recognizing, as Jesus does this, those who knew their scriptures well, and maybe you remember this as well, that you see exactly how Jesus is doing this here. You might remember the story from 1 Kings 17 of a prophet whose name was Elijah. And when Elijah encounters a widow who just lost her son, Elijah, filled with the power of God, raises this widow's son from the dead. So not surprisingly, the people who see Jesus doing this, this had happened 800 years earlier, but they see Jesus doing this and they were told, by another prophet, that another prophet like Elijah is coming, they're wondering, is this the great prophet we've been waiting for? A great prophet has arisen, they say. So they're trying to figure out who Jesus is by comparing him to something and someone that they know. And they even say this, they say, and God has visited his people. More than likely, they're not attributing deity to Jesus at this point. They don't know yet the full extent of who Jesus is. They're just recognizing God has visited His people. He's come and He's doing something. This is not something natural. This is something supernatural that's happening here. They use the word God visiting His people. We've seen that two other times in Luke so far. And it was in Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 78, where he is saying that God has, is going to visit His people, and now the people are saying God has visited His people. It's like they don't quite know altogether yet who Jesus is, but His actions have at least caused them to wonder and to say, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And it says then in verse 17 that reports about Jesus understandably spread beyond that small town. You know how stuff gets around in a small town. Certainly everybody in Nain would know that within a matter of of just a short period of time. And then soon, all sorts of people from all about that region know that there is this one who teaches with authority. He doesn't just heal the sick. He can raise the dead. That word spreads. Now, we need to keep a couple things in mind. One, this really happened. And we need to know that this this mattered a lot for that young man and for his mom, for sure. But the question that we might have, like you you can hear that story, you can believe that it really happened, and you can say, great, what does that have to do with us? Those are good questions. What does that have to do with us? It has a lot to do with us, and I'm going to just share two things today. This matters for us. Number one, this matters because Jesus has compassion on the grieving, vulnerable, and hopeless, and we should imitate Him. One thing we learn about Jesus in this passage is that He has compassion on the grieving, vulnerable, and hopeless. I love that Jesus doesn't just kind of fall into line in the funeral procession or stand respectfully and stern-facedly by while the woman grieves and weeps, walking in front of the funeral plank, holding her only son after already having done that with her husband. 
I love that Jesus has compassion on her. We learn that about our Savior in this passage. And aren't you glad that's who Jesus is? Aren't you glad that Jesus is compassionate? That Jesus, fully God, also became fully human to feel things the way that we feel things. No doubt, while growing up in Nazareth as a boy, Jesus felt the sting of death. No doubt He would have lost people that He loved. No doubt He would have been a part of a funeral processional before. I also don't doubt that as a young boy growing up in Nazareth, that He felt compassion toward His own mom, who was surely looked down on by some in that small town who remembered that He was conceived before she was married. When Jesus sees this vulnerable woman grieving, weeping, who had already been dealt at least two huge blows in life, she had lost her husband and now she had lost her only son, she was vulnerable in so many ways, feeling hopeless that day and Jesus sees her and He has compassion. Listen, this is good news for you here today who feel defeated, knocked down, Beat up, sad, vulnerable, hopeless maybe even. And you need to know this good news that Jesus, the One we worship, has compassion on you. That He sympathizes with you. You who have been deserted by those who were supposed to love you. Jesus who was denied and betrayed by His closest friends has compassion on you. You who are grieving and discouraged, who have been dealt tough blow after tough blow, unsure if you can get back up again, you need to know Jesus who knows you. Jesus who knows what it was like to be beaten, mocked, and ultimately crucified. He feels your pain. And church, we are called to imitate our compassionate Savior. He is compassionate And we should be too. People all around us are hurting. Their bodies are breaking down. People are struggling with anxiety, insecurity, depression. People are covering it up with alcohol, with entertainment, with humor. Maybe by just cutting other people down. We don't know what's going on in people's lives most of the time. Have you prayed for God to give you insight? And then in giving you insight, have you prayed for God to give you compassion for the people hurting all around us? Here's part of our problem. Let me just be honest. I think part of our problem is there's lots of information available to us that explain people's problems to us and give us solutions. There's lots of... Like you can watch hours or read for hours, or listen to hours of commentary that looks at the world around us and looks at its brokenness and gives you all of the reasons why everything's so messed up around us. Gives us all of the reasons that things are messed up and gives us all of the solutions to how it could get better. We could spend hours, and many of you probably do spend hours looking at it. It's the president's fault. It's the other party's fault. There's all sorts of solutions. We need a new president. We need uh, a new, new representatives. 
Right? We need a new program. We need more money. We need tax cuts. All sorts of people saying all sorts of things about what the problems are and what the solutions are. And all the, to- all the time, we've got people around us just hurting in all sorts of different ways. I'm grateful there's people working in politics and economics and education in all kinds of fields, and we should pray for them because their work does matter. But maybe we should also stop our endless search for answers and excuses and reasons and solutions in those places and just ask God to give us compassionate hearts and see what He might have us do. Just getting really practical, I sent out an email this week with three requests from our three local elementary schools asking for people to step up and mentor some kids in our community. There are kids, lots of them, in our little town who go home after school to find that mom's new boyfriend is moving in and he's not a very nice guy. Kids who go home after school to find out that already in the afternoon dad's passed out drunk on the couch again. Kids who go home from school to find that there is no food in their fridge to eat. Kids who go home and will spend endless hours playing video games because at least that way they're out of their parents' hair and they feel like nobody really cares for me. There's all sorts of kids in our community, in our schools, and that's their day-to-day life. And so we can listen to all sorts of commentary and come up with all sorts of solutions, but what if we just ask God, give me compassion, and I think I need to spend a little bit of time with one of them. If you didn't get that email, and you want to know how to get in contact with the schools who are all three asking for mentors, let me know, and I can get you in contact with them. Church, we need to love our name. That's one practical example. We need to grow in our compassion because we want to imitate our Savior who looks at people and has compassion on them. Secondly, Second and final bit of application is simply this. Jesus has power over death, so we put our hope in Him. We learn in this passage that Jesus is full of compassion and also that He has power over death. Let me just be blunt. Someday, your family is going to sit in the front row at your funeral and accompany your casket or urn on the way to a cemetery. It is quite possible that you will attend the funeral of the person sitting next to you here today. And we live in a culture that seeks to increasingly, I think, distance ourselves from the reality of death. We don't see dead bodies as frequently as people did in the past. More are choosing not to have any funeral or memorial service at all. But ready or not, like it or not, death is a reality and death is coming. You might eat all the right things and exercise and sleep just like they tell you to do, but you're still going to die. And people we love will die. Are you ready? Are you living life and facing death with hope? If you don't trust in Jesus, then you don't have any lasting hope. That's just the reality. You're a sinner, and upon death you will suffer eternal punishment in hell. This is the eternal destiny of all who have not been saved by God's grace through faith. But the good news is, we have a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And out of His love, we are told that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son 
that whoever should believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. In this passage and many others, we see, and especially in His own resurrection from the dead, we see that Jesus has power over sin and death so that all who trust in Him can live and die with hope. Because Jesus was raised from the dead with victory over sin and death, so all of us who are in Christ, who trust in Him by faith, can have the assurance that when we die, our soul goes immediately to be with Him. And upon His return, our bodies will be resurrected to be like His. And we will be with Him for all of eternity. This is the hope that we who are in Christ live and die with. And if this is not the hope that you live and die with, then let's talk about it because it's more important than the weather or football or baseball or whatever else you might want to talk about. So come and talk to me about that today after the worship service. I'll be around uh, and, and just kind of stand awkwardly waiting uh, and eventually we'll find each other. Okay? There's nothing really more important for us to talk about than this. Because we need to all recognize that we do not have power over death. But here in this passage, the compassionate Savior that we meet is also the one who reveals Himself as the one who alone has power over death. Our hope is in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that You sent Your Son because You love us. Thank You that He was fully human and had compassion. That You are a compassionate God. You know what loneliness feels like. You know what brokenness feels like. You know what hopelessness feels like. You know what desertion and pain and abuse and all kinds of other things that all kinds of people in this room today are feeling. So God, we thank You that we have a compassionate Savior. And God, would You help us then to be compassionate people? Not people who are quick to have answers or reasons or excuses or solutions, but people who are quick to come alongside people and point them to the One who has power over sin and death. The One who alone can give us hope in life and death. The One who alone is worthy of our praise. God, we want to be pointed to Him and we want to point others to Him. Would You equip us to do that on this day and throughout this week for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.